Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. You know, I'm very fortunate. I get to do this podcast and all of the activities that I do in the promotion and assistance of the You Need More Money book um, as a pleasure point for me, right? Thank God I don't need to do this to make money. I do it to have fun and meet very interesting people. And my guest today is one of those kinds of people. Someone that comes into your life and you say, hashtag like-minded. I just like the way this guy thinks. I like the way he talks about it. I like his transparency. I just kind of like the guy. And our first time meeting each other is today. Hmm. But my guest is the, is the author of the Entrepreneurial Personality Type, the book. He has a new book coming out in 2018 called Momentum. Uh, he is also the host of his own podcast called The Momentum Podcast. And one of the things that I suggest everybody gets a chance to do is take a look at my guest's TEDx talk. My guest today is Alex Charfin, and his TEDx talk is about the importance of stress. <laughs> and it was a fascinating TEDx talk that I enjoyed fully. So, Alex, welcome to the program. Privilege to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. Man, it's absolutely my pleasure, and I mean everything I said, buddy. I've listened to uh, many of your podcasts. I've watched a number of your videos. I, wa I follow you on social, and I just like the way you think, man. Thanks, brother. I, mean, I appreciate it. I think like-minded is, is about the best description you could give. Hashtag like-minded. That's what I'm looking for in my life now, man, because the reality is for most of my life, I pushed uh, all of that away. I thought I had to push the rock up the hill by myself. Mm hmm I had a lot of self-esteem issues, didn't think I was worthy of other people's assistance. I didn't think my business was big enough. I didn't think I was successful enough. And so I really, I really hid from like-mindedness. And now that I'm on the other side of that with a lovely network of wonderful friends and, and successful people and things of those na that nature, I realize I probably wasted a decade, man. That it cost me all those insecurities of feeling as though I had to do it myself and, and didn't need anybody else's help or I wasn't worthy of getting their help. I mean it, man. I'm 48 years old. I should be where I am today. I should have been there at 38 years old. I totally How do you feel that about feeling. that? Yeah. Did, no, did you go that. through that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. You know, Matt, it's interesting what you just, what you just described. It's that. You know, I, I think as entrepreneurs, we are hardwired completely different than the rest of the world. And there is such a big part of our mentality, of our um, philosophical approach to the world that is like, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to, you know, beat it down. And it, you know, in our early careers, it's all about us. It's about what can I do? And there's this transition or inflection point you go through as an entrepreneur. And the earlier you can get there, the better, where you realize you can't do it all. And the day you realize you can't do it all is the day you should release anything you shouldn't be doing. And I think that so many of us have these, these you know, constraints that we carry around. I always share with my client, any constraint you allow in the present creates a future limitation. So if you're carrying around a constraint like, I got to do it all myself, you are limiting your future by about 95%. Mm. And if you're can, carrying can, around a constraint that says, I'm not good with money, you will not be good with money. And so anything we commit to in the present creates a future result. Mm. So how do we get that out of our way earlier in our careers? Man, no question about it. Hey, I want to I want to just stay on that unique topic you just brought up for a second, Alex, because here's 
Here's something that a lot of people don't realize. You just referenced it that as entrepreneurs, we do have this sort of different mindset or different different lens on things, right? And what that what what that happens, what happens with that is even as we begin to develop the network and we connect with more like-minded people, it's still difficult to develop unique relationships because here's the deal. All the successful people that I know, and I'm sure in your network as well, if we needed it, we'd go get it. So I'm not going to send cigars to somebody that impresses them, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, take them out to a fancy dinner that impresses them because highly successful entrepreneurs get it themselves. We go into the marketplace and take what we need. So the, the only commodity that I would e- exchange with the audience connected to what you just said is this unbelievable value of transparency and authenticity. That is the exchange that rich people are dying for. They are not looking for you to impress them with what you drive up in or what you're dressed as or where you can go to dinner or lunch with them. It's irrelevant. They want you to be real. Yes or no? Oh, there's no question, Matt. You know, part of my history is um, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the most successful people in the world. You know, when I was 21, I'm 45 now. When I was 21, I became a consultant at the Fortune 500 level. And, um, you know, I, I very quickly was put into the, the C-suite of very large, very successful organizations. And when you get around people who move the world around like puzzle pieces who have nine figure or 10 figures in wealth, you know, th- there is nothing material that you're going to give them that matters. Because let's be honest, there's a place with wealth where you hit a threshold where you become numb to money. Like it doesn't matter anymore. And I can tell you firsthand, you know, the difference between making a half million dollars a year and making millions a year is really not that big a difference. Mm-hmm. Like you might spend a little bit more on vacations. You might eat a little bit better, but like there's only so many dinners and lunches and vacations and trips and cars and houses. Like, you know, at one point I had six cars. I had to start getting rid of them because the batteries kept dying. Yeah. And you get to this place where, you know, what you really are looking for, what I look for is authentic connection and authentic momentum created with other people who are like me. And one of the reasons I think that not only I got into the C-suite, but I was kept around and I've I've worked long term with a lot of incredibly wealthy people is that I'm, I'm willing to be transparent. I'm willing to get, you know, to the place where we talk about what's really happening. And they know that I'm not going to tell them what they want to hear because the scariest thing for a wealthy person is to become the emperors without clothes. And if you have too many people around you telling, telling you how great you are and how good you are and how well things are going, you very quickly will start to believe it. And people who do well in this world want people who tell them the truth. Yeah. And that's funny you say that because I was working with a buddy of mine just yesterday. He's speaking at, uh, at Grant Cardone's 10X Growth Con uh, in February. And he was asking for a little bit of help on the speech. He's one of the very early speakers on day one. Who is and, he? Uh, my buddy Brad Lee. Nice. And I was saying to Brad, here's what you should do. You should be the guy that gives permission to the 8,000 wackos that are going to be in the audience, right? And I say wackos with love in my heart. I mean, if you're going to Vegas to, for four days of that stuff, you, you, you want more. I mean, you have this drive that I think is, is something that everybody should, should embrace. I call it unbridled ambition, and they shouldn't be afraid of it. But what I said to him was, you need to be the guy that says to them, you bought your best suit, 
You're going to bullshit everybody in the audience that you're doing better than you really are at this event. You're going to you're going to pretend that you're someone else. And I said, you should be the guy that gives everybody in the audience the permission to put down that cloak and that facade and get real and honest and wring out your four days and your three or four grand that you spent to get the most authenticity and transparency out of it as you can. I said, if you do that, you will be one of the best speakers at the thing. You know, Matt, that, that, I mean, it, that, that is, it's so true, you know, today in the world of entrepreneurship and unfortunately Grant kind of reinforces some of this. I'm, I'm friends with Grant, but um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs these days have bought into the total BS of fake it until you make it or never let them see you sweat or all of these other adages that quite frankly should be flushed down the toilet because most of personal development today includes some aspect of denial where you're not telling people what's really going on. You're not letting people know what's really happening. You're wearing the fancy suit. You know, you're driving up in the rented car and, and, and wondering how you're gonna pay bills that month. And the fact is that when entrepreneurs get real, get raw and tell people what's really going on, all of a sudden their life starts improving. Yeah. Because when you start really telling people what's happening, there's this magic button. Like you tell people what's really going on, you actually get the help you need. And if you're doing this, fake it until you make it, lie and deny, you will always be on the outside wondering why you can't get the momentum you want, wondering why you can't get the success you want. The fact is, when I don't know something, when I'm having challenges with something, when I, when I don't understand what's going on, I just say it. And early on in my career, you know, I was in meetings where there was clearly confusion and things would be happening that people didn't really understand. You could tell by looking at people, they weren't really connecting. And I was the one guy who would say something. And because I would say something, that's why they kept bringing me back. So transparency yeah. is a bridge to the level of success you want, regardless of where you're starting from. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I just can't agree with you more. By the way, the rich ones see your phoniness coming a mile away. The only person you think you're fooling is you. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the wealthiest guy in the room doesn't have to tell you. And, and the fact is, anyone who tells you how important they are, just prove the opposite. <laughs> it's such a tough lesson to learn. It took me a long time to figure that out, man. No doubt. And so I, I cherish everyone's own journey. And if, if that person needs to do it, what we're trying to do on the podcast today is just help people skip a few rungs on the ladder, you know? And you got to do what you got to do. I mean, I've tried to bullshit my way into a lot of places. And 99% of the time, it only backfired on me. Right? <laughs> but we keep so, hoping for that 2% or 1%. Right, right. Or you think, you, you know, you think the 2% is actually 90%, you know, right. that you really did fake them out. And that's why they don't call your ass back, right? Right. Let's get into it for a sec, though, Alex, on how you made your money. So, so we had a, we've had multiple sort of phases of your 20-plus year, maybe 30-plus year career, because I know you were an entrepreneur from a young age. But your big hit was in the consultant see business, right? You, you were a consultant, sold the business, tried to parlay that or did parlay that into real estate. And then 2008 happened, right? Yeah. So, so I've, I mean, if you want to like a little financial history on me, um, when I was in, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had several businesses, like the businesses that we all have as kids. I, I had a, a business where I sold stuff to the neighbors. Then I sold candy to the other kids when I was in junior high. Then I had a window washing service in high school. All of those did pretty well, but they all had issues because I was young and I didn't know how to run a business. Then um, when I was in college, I started a financial consulting firm with a friend of mine. We ended up selling it. I moved to Orlando. I became an employee of a company as part of an earnout. I was supposed to be there a year. I made it eight months. So mm -hmm. not meant to be an employee. It was not good for me, not good for the company. <clears throat> I ended up with no job. I was on the other side of the country, no network. And that's when I became a consultant. 
I, um, I, I had an opportunity with somebody who had a consultancy. I got in the right room, ended up signing Fuji as a client, then SanDisk, then another division of Fuji. And it was like, dude, it was deep end of the pool, way more than I was experienced for. And I was like, I tell people, I, learned, I started holding my breath at about 21. I learned how to breathe again at 30. Mm. And uh, that company, I grew it to about 250 million a year. When I met my wife, we sold it. I retired for like 21 days. And then I thought I was going to retire for six months and then figure out what to do. Started buying and selling real estate. But hang on, Alex, at that time, what did you think the dollar amount that allowed you to retire was? Because people need to know what a real attainable number is. What did you think was enough for you and Katie to retire? Matt, our net worth back then was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of around three or four million. Mm -hmm. And we thought we were about halfway to retirement because the way I was looking at it with the real estate holdings we had, if we had, you know, six, seven, eight, and it got, it went up from there. But at that time, I felt like if, if I could just play the real estate game and have it go up from there and get to seven or eight million in wealth, then the passive income from it would be more than enough to live in. Live on. And what was that thought? That passive income would be, I mean, let's just say if you put an 8% return on it, you thought it was going to be somewhere in the five, $600,000 a year without touching principal for a long period of time. We did more. We did better than that. We were making mm. like 10 to 14, 10 to 20, like depending yeah. on the rental property and how I acquired it, we were doing a lot better than that. So you guys thought maybe a million bucks a year in passive income would have been the number that you guys could have lived comfortably. And that was 10 years. That was uh, 10 years ago for you guys, 11 years ago. So you were you were in your mid-30s. I mean, yeah. you had made it. Yeah, until I didn't make it uh, in, well, 2000, in 2007. Well, that's, that's the most important story right there is yeah. how you didn't make it. So let's go Let's go there real quick, right? You're ramping up. You're, you're buying real estate. Things are going very, so the, very well. Early 2000s, we started buying real estate. Um, within about a year, we became the largest home buyers in South Florida. We grew Ooh, our real estate. That's big. Yeah, it was big. We, we did about... We did over a thousand deals in an 18 month period. Um, it was like a closing every day. Most of them I, I didn't take the paper on. We ended up doing a lot of wholesale deals. We did buy a lot of them. I had a number of hard money lenders in South Florida. I had three or four crews that were always out rehabbing a property, flipping a property. Like it was just constant. And we had a bunch of support. And we built a really good team or series of teams that were doing this. And then in late 2006, early 2007 in South Florida, things started slowing down. And then by about March, April, May timeframe, they really started slowing down. And they just, the train came off the tracks in June. And the Wall Street Journal started publishing this article every week of the top 10 fastest, depre fastest depreciating zip codes in the U.S. All of our property, <laughs> tens of millions of dollars in property at this point, because we started low, we drove it way up. All of them were in four of the top six fastest depreciating zip codes. Three 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 zero one, three three zero six four. I mean, it was brutal, and um, we started watching our wealth go down by hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. In and what way? You couldn't. You you no longer could flip the houses for a profit. So it was it way was more you than that, Matt. Our our portfolio lost over seventy percent of its value. We, mm. we so just to give you an idea, like let's let's talk numbers because I know you like numbers. So I'll, I'll give you a small piece of our portfolio. So we had four condos in a complex called Stonebridge Garden, Florida. Florida. We owed seventy to about ninety thousand dollars, but the value on them was one sixty to one eighty. So we were about fifty percent loan to value. Like anybody would tell you, when you're at fifty percent LTV, you're safe. <laughs> so one hundred and eighty 
the lowest price one of those resold for was $15,500. They lost 90% of their value. Mm. We had properties that lost 90%. We had properties that lost 80%, 70%. Like the whole portfolio just came tumbling down. But and Alex, it- we lose when we sell. So <laughs> what was the force of the sell? Why did you have to unload at those values? Why didn't you just hold, make the cash flow, and then, and then live to see another day? So 2005 was Katrina. 2006 was Wilma. We spent about a million dollars combined trying to, to get past all of the hurt damage we had from those two hurricanes. In those hurricanes, we had several properties get condemned. And then mm-hmm. the real estate market got challenged to the point in South Florida where people started moving away. So we couldn't find renters. We couldn't find buyers. Um, values came down so fast, we could no longer make money in real estate. Most of our wealth, our income, our revenues were from real estate. And Matt, to give you perspective, there's a a greater market area called Pembroke Pines, Florida. About 1,500 homes used to sell in that area each period. And it went from 1,500 to 60. Like every title company, every real estate agent, every mortgage broker was starving. And it just fell off the face of the earth. And what happened was we started watching our numbers and, you know, I was watching our bank accounts drain, renters move out, damages still trying to be repaired. And we got to a place where we were like 60 to 90 days from where we weren't going to pay for it all. And we went and saw an attorney and we ended up going bankrupt. It was devastating. Mm. And had, had there been a way to hold it, had there been a way to do anything else, we would have tried but you get to a place, especially we got to a place in, in real estate because of the catastrophic nature of that event. You know, you couldn't wholesale properties. You couldn't sell and, and banks just stopped lending in South Florida. There was about an eight month period where you couldn't close a loan. I think it's important that the audience really understands because, Alex, as you know, there is an entire generation of young hustlers that have no idea what you're talking about. No doubt. They, they were in high school. Maybe they were a first year in college when 2008 was happening. And, you know, I've been through that cycle three times in my 23 years in business. And we've basically been broke twice. But we were dumb enough to keep the, just keep showing up every day, right? I mean, we literally just kept picking up the phone. And eventually, like my buddy Dave Meltzer loves to talk about, and I think it's such a brilliant, simple way of looking at entrepreneurship. He says, the key goal of entrepreneurship is to stay in business for tomorrow. That You can break it down to be that simple, that your job is to keep the doors open so you can attempt to win tomorrow. And I really do love that because that's what we did. Um, but my point is, we are in such unbeliev- unbelievable economic bliss again that people really, they can't fathom that 2008 could happen again. And you and I are here to tell them, prepare it's coming. It could, it's coming. It's coming. And when, it's and when it special. comes, <laughs> oh, it's going to be so special, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I'm putting so many different systems in place to guarantee that like when, when the counterbalance is needed, because yeah. 2007, 2008 was arguably one of the most devastating global financial crises that we've ever seen in global economy. If we look at what the conditions were in 2006 and seven that caused that collapse, and then we look at a parallel today, <laughs> there's no comparison. We right. are so much worse off today. There yeah. is so much more dramatic than it's ever been. And where in that collapse, the banks were holding the bag, in this one, we are. It's, it's, it's unbelievably um, apropos because I believe we have another two or three years of a very robust run. I think I have a very good 
indicator of it, Alex. I'm in transportation. Uh, obviously, we finance trucking and transportation-related, construction-related companies. They are a unbelievable leading indicator of what's going on. They're a, a nine-month leading indicator of what's going on. If my trucking customers tell me it's getting slow, it tells me that the consumers aren't buying product. They're literally not buying enough milk or toilet paper to keep the trucks busy. We are so far from that. The trucking customers that we have are so busy. Truck orders just for the month of December went up 37% in December over November. They're buying, they're expanding. It's unbelievable. That is, that is telling me that we've got two years of an unbelievable runway for people to put the stop gaps that you were just talking about in place. No doubt. So no we're doubt. in good shape. We're in good shape to be protectionistic to, to prepare to actually stack and rack and put a few more bucks away. Because when this bad boy happens in 2020-ish, so many people are just going to get their asses handed to them. Well, Katie and I went bankrupt in 2007. And our, we went bankrupt in July of 07. We were liquid millionaires by July of 08. And mm. with the business that we own today. And throughout mm. the course of that process, we, we created a designation for the real estate industry that grossed about $70 million And we kept a lot of it. Um, not, not half, but like everybody just, whenever you say we grow 70 million, people assume you made 60. Like the fact is running, <laughs> that way. But, but we kept a lot of it and, um, and we did well, but this next crash, we won't do well. This next crash, we'll do nine figures. Well, because mm. when you look at the conditions that were present in the last one, if you can spot those conditions in the next one and understand where the market turns, it's not hard to go out and print money when there's a huge collapse. And, and that's like the next one that happens. That's what we're doing. Well, so let's just talk about it. I mean, I gave you my leading indicator of mine, which, which I rely on and have for the last 25 years. What's sure. your leading indicator that says, hey, it's turning? So, Matt, I, I look at all of the real estate numbers. I look at new home sales, new home sales price, um, days on market, how many and, and active and pending and closed sales. And when yeah. you look at all of those as indicators in the different price bands by market, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for when the high end stops selling and the low end starts backing up. Because as soon as high end slows down and low end starts backing up, you get a compression in the market and it collapses. Mm -hmm. And right now in a lot of markets, we're seeing some congestion at the high end. We're yes. still seeing rapid sales at the low end. Let's go back to 2005 and 2006. The high end started slowing down and getting congested. The low end, we couldn't build enough. There was, you know, 40% of the sales were second homes. Everybody was buying a house. Like anything low end was selling like crazy. I think we're very much in a similar condition today. And when you look at some of the loan product that's out there, let's be honest, we've gone back to the same BS loans that got us into the first financial crisis that we had. And in, in housing, they're, they're named something different. It's a different application process. Same result. I do think it's important that people understand what you just said, because the high end market has slowed oh, and yeah, it's it slowed for the last nine months or so. Now, you're in Austin, right? Yep. So, I mean, Austin is, is bucking the trend. Oh, we're still uh, seeing some congestion at the high end, Matt. I mean, that's Katie and I had a big residential holding. We had huge, huge property holding up until about the second quarter of last year. We started selling. Yeah, because I, I'm never going to try and time the exact high point of the market. Yeah, we started watching what was going on with multifamily here in Austin. And so much has been built that some of the rents started to get compression. Mm -hmm. So when you see them, here's here's what happens in the market. When the high end comes down, that means the smart money knows what's going on. Right. And then when the low end starts getting shaky, 
That means that the people, your entry level buyer, the engine that keeps the whole market going is starting to slow down. Well, when you look at that, of the 5 million homes that are sold every year, when the low end starts getting shaky, man, that number comes down fast. So it's a powerful uh, sort of dichotomy, right? Because uh, trucking was slow in 2016. That happens to be the seven-year anniversary of 2008, 2009, which I'm a seven-year guy. Terrible to start my business in 95. Very challenging in 0102. Very challenging in 0809. I kept saying, "Where's the seven-year itch?" Uh-huh. It did hit. It did hit transportation in 16, but it has rebounded very quickly. So. You and I are in complete agreement of the way we see real estate because I'm seeing the exact same trends. But I do have this different component of information and data and transportation that tells me that we're going to be very strong for another year or two. I really think two years. So, so we, but by the way, when things start to move like that and get a little twisted and you're getting these very different data spikes and chickens and feathers and different things. All of that is a direct indicator of something percolating. Where there's smoke, there's fire, man. No question. And there's a little smoke, right? Oh, yeah. It, there's smoke. There's smoke today, you know? And, and I think, like, especially when you look at the residential housing market, when you look at the level of student debt and alternative debt in the United States right now, and then I know a lot of people don't like to hear about this because everybody loves getting a new car, but when you look at the new car debt, like how much consumers have gone into debt, here's what's happened. You know, 2006, 2007, the banks had this ridiculous market of just being able to loan money to anyone and they had to replace that somewhere well what you've seen is you know there's not as much residential credit but there's been a huge increase in automobile credit in credit cards in short-term loans in um, term financing and so all of that has raised the debt capacity of the average buyer huge and what happens is when people have a lot of debt and there's a hiccup in the market the whole structure comes tumbling down. So look, I mean, you people are going to go shoot themselves and jump off bridges after they listen to this podcast for you and I, right? So let's give a few takeaways to the audience because what let's talk about real takeaways that you would recommend for somebody, Alex. How do they readjust? Forget about necessarily what their financial instruments are. How do they readjust their mindset to be prepared to weather whenever the storm hits? What are two, three things you would say that everybody's got to do? Well, Matt, here's the easiest thing. It's like you have to just adjust to the fact that in a stable market, there's not a lot of opportunity. If things are going well and everybody's happy and things are okay, there's not a lot of opportunity. Opportunity shows itself when markets are recovering dramatically or when they're going down. And when, when things are challenged, there is more opportunity than anywhere else. When there's, when there's fluctuations in the market, that's where guys like you and I can step in with experience and say, hey, here's what's going on. And the fact is, if, if it, I've always made much more when the market is fluctuating either up and down than when it's really stable because stable businesses are the boring businesses. And when you, when you see a market fluctuate and start moving around, that's when opportunity shows itself in the biggest way. So I think the first thing that people should do is adjust and say, like, just because the market's in crisis doesn't mean I am. And when you look at some of the wealthiest people in the world, they made their money during market crisis. Yeah, I love that advice, dude. I mean, really, what you're saying is it's a mindset, a mindset shift into uh, being very comfortable with with looking for problems. Yeah, I mean, when you look at you know, you listen to Warren Buffett, one of the smartest guys in the world. I've got his his biography, Snowball, right back here. And if you look at the the history of Warren Buffett, everybody wants to call him the wisest investor in the world, but you could also define him as an individual who year after year has made money from crisis. What does he say when, when, the, when people get 
uh, greedy, be scared. And when people get scared, get greedy. What is it? He waits until the world is scared. And then he's like, here's all the opportunities. I think mm-hmm. that all of us should adopt that mindset because then we're immune to crisis. Yeah, man, I, I really love that. I mean, again, hashtag like-mindedness. I just, I just couldn't agree with you more on that. And so many people uh, don't understand that. And it's the biggest wake-up call I try to give people in my book, You Need More Money, which is you never know when two planes are going to hit skyscrapers or regulation is going to change your industry completely or you go to the doctor, think you're going to get a steroid shot and be back to work the next day and you get diagnosed with stage four cancer. So get yourself in a position where regardless of what the outcome is, controllable or uncontrollable, the people around you are protected. Screw, screw protecting yourself. In a way, that's selfish, and it often doesn't drive the kind of mindset or action required. It's who around you do you not want to be put in a horrendous situation? For you, I'm, do you have any children, Alex? We do. Yeah, I've got an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old. So I can just tell about you without knowing you very well, but I can already tell that most of your life is in the drive to protect your wife, Katie. I can just say it. You mention her name constantly. You mention it in an affectionate way. I just know that she's a driver. If, if, If we get to know each other, I have the same component with my wife. Her name is Rocky. And I listen, if I need it, I'll go get it. And I don't need much. But the rocker needs a lot. And I like to I like to make the rocker happy. And so my success is driven for the benefit of others. And I believe more people should figure out what is that component. You don't have to be married to be successful for sure. But there has to be a component outside of you in order to really fuel it at a, at a, at a heat level necessary to move the damn needle. No doubt. You know, I, I think that, um, well, I mean, you, me, and everybody listening to this podcast is hardwired differently than the rest of the world. When you look at entrepreneurs and, and, you know, this is my research, the entrepreneurial personality type, we're different than everyone else. We are driven in a way that is not like the rest of the world. We, we don't want success. We need success. We, you know, we, we don't, we don't live like the rest of people out there. And I think that, you know, all of us at one time or another have been told to sit down, shut up, stop moving, quit asking so many questions and making everybody else uncomfortable. And the fact is, We do that because we are this tiny little population that gets up every morning and says, how do we go forward? How do we make more happen? How do we make more come out of this? And the rest of the world's not ready for that. You know, Mm -hmm. while, while most of the world clings to average and strives desperately to maintain the the, the the status quo, we get up every day and say, let's change this place for the better. And we scare the rest of the world. Yeah, we do. We scare a lot of people away. And, and we even scare ourselves, man. Relationships that begin to change, we don't really even know how to, how to act and approve, right? I mean, it's just, we, it, it truly is a DNA type of a thing. But on that note, do you believe that the entrepreneurial personality type, the title of your book, is, is, is innate or learned? Um, can I give you a longer answer to that, Matt? Because it's not just a yes or no, or it's not just an innate or no. So, so here's, I, I, I would, here's, here's, here's how I'd like to answer that. I'd like you to qualify yourself as an entrepreneurial personality type, then you can tell me. So, there is no question. Oh, you're going to ask me yeah, questions me to qualify myself? Okay, 10 okay, yeah, so, so here's how I see it, Matt. There's four types of people in the world. There's four groups. And if we look at the human tribe, the human population, the human species, 
there's four people, four groups that evolutionarily were all critically important to this species. And I want you to see which one you are. So the mm. first group, I call them the caretakers. This is a group of people that wants to take care of other people. They want to make sure other people. No, no, I am not. <laughs> well, no, Matt, don't care. The disqualification question for this is, do you like to change bedpans? Uh, I would change a bedpan for, for a few select people. Sure. Do you like it? Oh, fuck no. Right. No, I would you know never what? like it. But Matt, here's what's funny. You laugh about it, but here's what happens when you ask a caretaker, because I've done it. I've been in a room, watched somebody change a bedpan, and I'm like, why is that person doing it? You've got to be able to find a better job. Like, come on. Do you really want to do that? And I'll say, like, hey, excuse me, do you like changing that bedpan? Because I study human behavior. And they'll turn to me congruently, and they'll say something like, Alex, if, if that person needed a bedpan changing and I was here and I could be of service, I feel fulfilled. Yes, I like to change bedpans. Matt, I'm always like, holy crap, we are so different, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I was in the hospital yesterday with my wife. She actually had a little procedure, a, a, a day surgery yesterday. And I was so unbelievably grateful to the nurses who were taking such incredible care of her. And I was recognizing a similar fact, but maybe in a different way, Alex. Like I wasn't looking at, Oh God, I could never do their job. I was looking at, I'm so thankful that someone is doing that job so I don't have to do that No job. question, Matt. Do we need caretakers in the world? Heck yeah. Because guys like you and I are running from the bedpan. Let's be really honest. That whole like little thing you said earlier about a few select people, come on, we both know that's crap. You don't want to change a bedpan. None of us do. <laughs> so the second type of group, <laughs> the second group, is the communicators. And now this is interesting because a lot of entrepreneurs think they belong in this group. And the communicators are the group who they talk, they want to share things. They want to, they like to the actual act of communicating. And, you know, our evolutionary tribe needed the caretakers. We needed the communicators, the people who carry on oral tradition, who said like, Hey, there's something over there that'll kill you. Don't go over there. There's a woolly mammoth. Don't eat this. It'll you know, make you die. But Today, the, the communicators, the way that we qualify for them is a simple question, Matt. Do you enjoy small talk? I can't stand it. Exactly. I'm far more comfortable being totally silent than I am in small talk. When somebody starts small talk, like I don't get nervous or uncomfortable in many situations. Like I'm a trained fighter. I've spoken in front of tens of thousands of people. I've been on TV. I do podcast, like nothing. You put me in an open house night at my kid's school with another parent who I don't know, and they're like, hey, did you see the game last night? I'm sweating. That's really interesting, dude. So am I. And only recently have I began to understand that about myself. Yeah, because me. I used to think I was a pretty decent communicator, and now I realize how, 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 how poor of a job I do. And I, by the way, I spend no time on my weaknesses. So once I recognize it as a weakness, I won't spend time getting better at it. Yeah, me too. I don't care. Me too. Pound Sam, man. I don't want to get better at something I hate. But here's the thing. Do we need communicators? Heck yeah, because yeah. we need people to tell us what's going on. And our evolutionary tribe needed those people like crazy. But sure. you, know, you, you know, and here's what's interesting about communicators. Like, you know you're not one of them because you put two communicators at a water cooler and they'll, they'll talk for 45 minutes about a 30-minute TV show. Like, I don't even know you can do that. Yeah. So now here's the third group of people. I call them the coordinators. And the coordinators are the ones who like – they like systems and structure and red tape and rules and regulations and laws. And, you know, they like the, the contingencies and they love contracts, not because there's a deal. Like I love contracts because there's a deal, but they love contracts because there's a contract. And the disqualification um, question for coordinators is, do you enjoy being on committees? Yeah, I mean, the, the word, I just resigned from, from the <laughs> 
from the lacrosse uh, the lacrosse committee. I, I just said, guys, I, I'm delivering no value to this committee. I'm out. That's yeah. it. So I'm, no, I'm, not I'm right me. there with you, Matt. I can't stand them. But I do want to. Uh, there's. I want to preface something on that because there was one component of that. I do believe that I I don't enjoy chaos in the business practice. So I do like systems and processes in the in the journey of analyzing, right? And and I do think it's a it's an important thing for people to understand that that often chaos in the entrepreneurial world some people might glamorize it as you need chaos and say yes to everything and and my opinion is you really need structure that's that's what when you adhere to the structure that's how you really win the game no question matt but there's a difference between us and coordinators see we look at the structure as a means to an end so that we can create a bigger outcome because yeah, yeah, yeah. Me to participate in a structure without an outcome i'm out right? yeah so listen so so let me ask you this question alex how happy are you with DocuSign? Because now that DocuSign came out, you're like, click, 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 done. I'm out. Every contract we have is DocuSign. Everything, right? Everything. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm doing a bunch of deals outside the business lately. And, and, uh, and I just asked five, six, seven questions. And then I'm like, send me the DocuSign. Yep. That's it. Yep. And then when they don't send me the DocuSign, I'm like, you're actually asking me to read through this thing? Just send me the damn DocuSign. <laughs> I'm good with it. Send me the DocuSign. I'm totally with you. And, <laughs> and you know, when you look at coordinators, if we're ever going to have conflict, Matt, because entrepreneurs have conflict, it's with a coordinator because we get up every day and we're like, let's change it, make it better, make it new. Coordinators get up every day and they're like, let's keep it the same, maintain the status quo, keep everything even. So we've, we've disqualified you from the first three. Let's see if you qualify for the third one. So if, if we have an evolutionary tribe, and I'm not talking about the theory of evolution, I don't want to piss anybody off, but I'm saying human beings evolve on a daily basis. If you don't believe that, you just need to go look at the BMI. Like people are getting bigger, they're getting smarter, yeah. brain synapses are moving quicker. We've scientifically proven that current evolution is here. Yeah. So Size of heads are growing. Tribe, and we say we had the caretakers, we had the communicators, we had the coordinators. What group's missing? The killers. That's right, baby. The evolutionary hunters. And when you look at our human population, there is this third group that is programmed to get up every day, go into the future, imagine a new reality. And then regardless of the vulnerability it causes, the pain it causes, the exposure, anything that that they need to do, they will come back to the present and insist it becomes real. And we are that small fraction of the population that is not content with the status quo, that's not okay with everything that's going on. And here's the qualification question for this one, Matt. Can you turn it off? Yeah, you cannot turn that off. But everybody else can, brother. See, here's the thing. You look at the rest of the populations in the world, and you know what they're doing? They're waiting for the day they can go on vacation and do nothing. They're praying that they make it the next 25 years so that they can sit on in, a, in an easy chair. They're, they're literally working every day to do nothing. And when you look at those other populations, communicator, coordinator, caretaker, they live for the present. Like, literally, you have to look at functionally how they, they work caretaking, coordinating, communicating is right now in the present, this moment. And when you look at evolutionary hunters, we are hardwired to go out into the world, make something happen, come back to the present, make it real. We are completely different. We don't live in today. We live in the future. So we always, at some level, create conflict with those other groups. And so, you know, when somebody asks me, are entrepreneurs made or are they 
you know, taught over time, I think just about any human being on earth can get in touch with their evolutionary hunter. But I think the vast majority don't have any interest in doing so. And it's, you know, when you look at the rest of the world who is desperate to get to the day where they can do nothing, you look at entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial personality types, evolutionary hunters, we are that segment of the population that can't turn it off and quite frankly, doesn't know why anybody would want to. Oh my God, what a, what a unbelievable journey we just, taught, we just took to answer the question of is it innate or is it learned? And that, I congratulate you, dude. That is a really well thought out way of looking at it. And I've never looked at it that way because I think I'm so far in the number four category that I don't even slow to look at why I'm there. I just know I'm there and I don't want it to change ever. Let me give right? you a little bit more, Matt. Like if you like that, so check this out. Because <laughs> I've obsessed over this, you know, like so, so I'll share a little bit more about myself and then let me share a little more about the evolutionary hunter because I want to give you some insight into our personality type. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was awkward. Like, I'm awkward now. So imagine me as a little kid, you know, and I, uh, I didn't under, to understand people very well. I didn't get along with teachers. I didn't go along with people in my class. I just read obsessively. And I started- but wait a minute. Why? Why is that? Did you not have someone in your life that was outgoing and gregarious that you wanted to emulate? Or did you have the opposite? Someone who was so outgoing and gregarious that it made you shut down? Matt, when I got into school, I felt like an alien. I couldn't sit still. No, I couldn't sit still like the rest of the kids. I had a hard time following what the teacher was saying. When we had to go to reading group and read, I would like inadvertently read ahead and then get caught off guard. I was put into special education in second grade. In third grade, they did testing. Then I was put in gifted and talented. Then I went back to regular school. Then I got to special. Then I went back to gifted and talented. Like it was just a confusing ride for me. And as a kid, I obsessively read about successful people. And I started seeing these patterns like we are all the same. Successful people are a personality type. And, and try this on for size. I know I sound crazy when I say this, but I'll explain it. I don't think people like you and I understand the difference between happy and sad. Now, let me explain it. So, so you, see, you get it. See, and when people say, what do you mean by that, Alex? Well, here's what I mean. Like happy and sad. We've all deduced it. We figured it out that it's like happy's on, sad's off. If somebody's happy, it's good. If somebody's sad, it's bad. But like, what's the difference between sad, frustrated, pissed off, pissed off ticked off, confused, and just plain not going to talk to you? Who knows? Who, who knows? Cares? And who cares? <laughs> you know why? Because evolutionary hunters don't live in the world of feelings. If you're on the hunt and somebody gets hurt, you can't stop to cry yeah, about it. You yeah, have to yeah, keep going. Yeah. And so when somebody says, how are you feeling? My answer in my head is, I feel like I want to punch you in the face because I don't care about those words. They're made for Disney movies, not for me. And I was just talking to my, but I got to interrupt you because I was just talking to my buddy Ed Milet about this. And, and I was saying to him, I guarantee that you are pissed off 90% of the time. And he's like, man, I got my place on the ocean. I got my place on the, on the lake in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I got my jet and I'm pissed off 90% of the time. I said, let me help you with it for a second. Don't lose that because it helps you be so crazy, insane, happy for the 10% of the time. Well, and, and here's how I look at it, Matt. I don't think that evolutionary hunters even understand the world of emotions, nor should we try and play there. It's for everybody else. And the fact is, when you look at how we exist, it's in one of three states. 
the first state that we live in is momentum. Now, this is important. If, if, any, if you relate to what I've said so far, this is life-changing if you allow it to be. Because when you realize that what we really live for is momentum, that state of flow, that state of being in the moment of moving forward. Do you know what I'm talking about, Matt? Yeah, but dude, that, hold on. I got to stop you on that because because it is it is important, dude. You have to be in this in this fourth category you're describing. You have to be sensitive about it because because it is so in the ether that it can wreak havoc at home with your spouse, with your children, with your co- with your kid's coach or your co- kid's teacher. I mean, you do have to have some ability to come down from the ether back to earth and then back to the ether again. How do you handle that connection? Well, I mean, first you understand who you are and you realize that when what, what we're really looking for is that feeling of forward progress, that feeling of achievement, that feeling of succeeding. You know, the entrepreneurial personality type, the definition we have is that we are a physiologically sensitive, momentum-based being that is highly reactive to constraint. And so the more we focus on creating momentum, the more we realize our physiology does that, the more we realize that when we're in momentum, that's when we feel alive. You know that yes, feeling I'm talking about. Totally, of course. I just scream for it every minute of every day. Right. And and here's the key. When we're in momentum, we are physiologically boosted. Do you know what I'm talking about, Matt? You have more stamina, you can do more. We're cognitively boosted. We're actually smarter. We make decisions better. And here's the big one. We're chemically boosted. Yeah, but I I dude, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we're it's the zone. And everything turns on fire. It's one of the reasons why I do these cold water swims in the morning. Like I, uh, I mean, I love freezing cold, as cold as it could get. There is no, by the way, hard for some people to understand, there is no water temperature that I would say no to. <laughs> now, I, I may not stay in for eight minutes or something like that, but there, I, I would win any bet anywhere on the planet if somebody said I'd pay you 100 1000 10000 to go in that water the answer 100% of the time would be bring it on i'll strip down right now and go in that water i don't even know why i'm bringing it up to you with the exception of i'm craving that zone yeah of uniqueness and aloneness and different I crave it to the point where I go in 40 degree water now. Oh, Matt, I mean, it's to the point where I hop into a car and take it up to 160 miles an hour and then slide it sideways on a four wheel drift into a 90 degree apex turn. <laughs> that's when I feel most connected to the world. Right? Yeah, I love that. Everyone's got their way, right? I mean, it's a guy in my office who just did a 35 mile adventure run, you know, stuff like that. People do the 100 mile adventure runs, all that sort of stuff. I mean, you really do begin to see people now, Alex really start to push the, the, the levels of boundary. What you just described is one of those experiences. Dude. Yeah, and, what you just did, right? you know? and I wouldn't give it up for anything because that's when I feel momentum. Now, here's, yeah. here's the key, though. There's two more states we exist in, and this is where we have to be careful. The second state is when we're facing resistance, but this resistance, but this one's interesting. This is that place in our lives or those times in our lives where we're facing a resistance. The cards are stacked against us. We're out of resources. We don't have the right things in our life. Maybe the world has conspired against us. We've conspired against ourselves in a lot of cases. But for people like us, if we can see that small light at the end of the tunnel, it doesn't matter that the people in our lives are like, hey, Matt, that light is a train. (laughs) We just keep going towards it and we trust it and we compel it towards us. We compel ourselves forward. We step through that light and that's when we create our lives. Do you know what I'm talking about, Matt? Fuck yeah. Because when we are facing resistance, we create momentum just like an evolutionary hunter would. 
Now, here's the big challenge for us is that the third state is the one that damages people like us. Mm. It's the one that hurts people like us. It's the one that makes us look symptomatic. It's the one that'll get you prescriptions. It's the one that'll have people saying that you're ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, autistic, bipolar, depressed, manic, all the shit that they've said about me because I have every one of those diagnoses. Because when we're in this third state of being in full constraint, that's when we break down. When you're in constraint, when you can't move forward, when you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when you can't see your next step, when you're in that place in your life where you don't know what you're going to do next, and I've been there, and when you get into that full constraint, almost immediately your body breaks down. We feel fatigued within seconds. Cognitively, we have trouble making decisions, and here's the big one. Chemically, we feel the chemical effect of constraint, and it makes us symptomatic. Matt, some of my friends have more money than you, me, and everybody we know could spend in our lifetimes if we tried every single day. They are some of the most brilliant, most talented people in the world. But if they get into a place where they're in that moment or in that time of full constraint, they look just as symptomatic as anybody who's walking the halls of a loony bin. They're throwing shit around their offices. They're breaking plates on their private jets. They're you know yelling and screaming at people. They're, they're looking and feeling like they're not really succeeding. And so for people like us, the key is we must keep ourselves out of that place of constraint. My friend, that is some powerful shit. <laughs> and I will, uh, I will tell you that uh, that last piece is so real. And it's actually one of the greatest uh, benefits of the podcast that, that I do, as, as we talked about before the show and, and my audience knows. I don't, I, I, there's, there's no money that, that book sales could put in my pocket that would change my life, period. But yet this podcast has, has allowed me the opportunity to fuel that number three that you just talked about in an effort to meet new people, to test myself in preparation, to go in thought process. Look, what you talked about today, Alex, was very meta to me in a lot of ways for you it might be not meta for me it's meta i look at it all very uh grunt and caveman like right um evolutionary and, hunter like uh, <laughs> right really <laughs> and so so you know but things like like frustration depression sadness lack of connection are all connected to lack of uh, the innate requirement to be hunting. That's right, baby. And the fact is, for people like us, it's the hunt, not the kill that matters. Because it is nothing. The, the universe or, or whatever higher power you believe in, because if, if, I mean, if you don't believe in a higher power, that's cool. Then it was all an explosion and we got lucky. But I think there's some intelligent design in the universe. And I think that there's, there's clearly okay. something higher power that has put us here and, and, and helped us to be who we are. When I held yeah. my daughter for the first time, like I saw a higher power. I saw what, if you want to call it God or all or whatever it is, there's clearly something greater here. And the fact is that we have been hardwired to propel ourselves forward, to make the commitments that other people won't make, to go out there and make things happen. And the challenge for people like us is that we believe that the goal is going to finally satisfy us one day. And the faster you realize that your entire existence is not about achievement, but about being on the hunt, and that the fact is, as soon as you start approaching a goal, it is going to lose importance with you 
you lose importance for you with the same speed that you are approaching it. Like as we hit the finish line, it doesn't matter anymore. You know why? If hunters stopped to celebrate every time they made a kill, the rest of the tribe would starve. And that's why we are driven to keep going forward. But see, that's why you need to have more guests on your podcast, Momentum. Because I'm going to be perfectly frank with you. I've listened to a number of the episodes. When it is just you riffing, you can't go to where you've gone on this podcast. You go fairly structured. It's, it, there's, there's some expansion, but you need the other person to bounce off of. You are more powerful, in my opinion, and I, I think I am too. Please, I hope I'm not insulting you. Oh, of course but, not, Matt. But this is the environment, right? Like when, when there's someone else to be bouncing and riffing off of, I think you and I are both more powerful than we are alone because alone we can shut down and just become incredibly introspective. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. My wife says that, I, that, I, that there are periods where I do shut down. And by the way, those periods, periods just for the audience to understand, those are periods right before, it is darkest right before the dawn. And, and that is when I, you know, it's like, the, it's like the tidal wave, right? When it comes in, I just relish that moment because I've conditioned myself to realize that something unbelievable is going to happen. But for many years, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it did create depression and it did create sadness and unhappiness. Now for me, I just know it's percolating and it's just the next great thing is ready to explode, right? No question. How did you feel about my comments on, on you having more guests on your podcast to be able to really get you to expand and go there on these, on these theories and these concepts that you've done so much mastery behind? You know, we've, we've thought about it, Matt, and, and what we're looking at doing at this point is creating a new podcast, a different one that we record mm. live and probably broadcast online and have guests mm. on. Mm. Um, I think we've, we've created a really strong core audience around the EPT. We're not, not, it's not that we're afraid to change it. I think that that audience has come to expect like a short 15 to 20 minute, like get me going for the day. And we're considering a second podcast where I pull in clients. Like I want to start sharing when you understand the EPT and you apply it in the right way. This is what happens. What's EPT? What's that? Entrepreneurial personality type. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the acronym for the name of the book. Well, it's also okay, an early you. pregnancy test, but I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Hey, listen, Alex, we're coming up on the timeline here. There's two things that I got to do for you. Number one, I want to make sure everybody understands where they can find out more because, because you went way deep, dude, which shows your mastery of yourself and the material. And I congratulate you on that. We have the book, The Entrepreneurial Personality Type. We have the new book coming out, Momentum. I highly recommend everybody watch the TEDx talk for Alex Charfin. We didn't get to it. You want to talk about that TEDx talk? Because the component of your interpretation of stress was very different and very unique, and it resonated big time with me, which is everyone's so damn afraid of stressful situations. And your component was there's a period of, of, of embracing stress, which is a requirement of success. Yep. Yeah, it's you stress. It's that place where you are fully engaged, fully turned on and fully present due to the stress that's in the environment. Now, there's a place where you burn out and there's a place where you're understimulated. But what you know, that that world of you stress to me, that's when we're in momentum. It's when we're creating. It's when we're achieving. It's when we're having the effect that we want to have. And quite frankly, like if we if you and I aren't there, we feel like we're dying. Totally. Because there's no, there's no stress in purpose. Yeah. When you're on purpose, there's no stress. Yeah. It's really not. It's just par for the course. It just is par for the course. The stress occurs exactly as you said in your TEDx talk when there is this burnout factor, when you're on the other side where the excitement is gone. Yep. 
or or the alignment, the congruency is just not there. That's that's where the stress is, right? And the power is is having the self knowledge to know where that is, and then to do something about it. No Some people will live their entire lives afraid to do something about it. Well, I would say most people live their entire lives afraid to do something about it, Matt. When you look at the massive population out there, let's be honest, at 7.30 every day, a show like Wheel of Fortune comes on, still today, and if it doesn't come on, tens of thousands of people call the network and say, where's Wheel of Fortune? Guys like you and I can't even fathom making that phone call or even knowing that Wheel of Fortune didn't happen. The rest of the world literally sits around waiting for things to come to them. Listen, I have no judgment on that, though, Alex. I truly don't. That is that is uh, the individual's interpretation of how they want to run the race, and, well, and, and I support that. that. I'm, I'm not, I want to make it clear. I'm not judging, but I am pointing out and crystallizing how dramatically different evolutionary yeah. hunters are from the rest of the population. I got that. Totally great. And then the last piece is the podcast momentum. So if you were in Dallas, and I hope you come to Dallas. By the way, everyone comes through Dallas at some point. It's just one of those unwritten rules. At some point in time, everyone's lives take them through Dallas, Texas, whether it's a layover or it's a speech or it's a business meeting, somebody, I want you to come in and sign this booth behind me here. You got it. Because that's what I do with my podcast guests, anyone who's in the studio. And by the way, that thing, just for just for uh, reasoning behind it, I, I had that uh, phone booth, that red uh, London phone booth brought in here, Alex, because it reminds me of two things. Can you imagine a time when that phone booth was a prerequisite for our success, <laughs> right? No, we dude. had to have it. Man. Dude, I we remember had to have carrying a... around change every day because if you had to call somebody back from your beeper, you had to have change. <laughs> but the other reason I have it is because it also forces me to remember how obsolete things become and how completely useless that is to the entire world today. And the only thing I have it in here for is my guests sign it when they're in the studio, and it will become a, a lifetime legacy r- reminder of all the wonderful people I met. But most importantly, it tells me to push fucking fast. <laughs> That's super awesome. I love it. Right. So again, Alex, it was absolutely my pleasure. I enjoyed it fully. I look forward to seeing you down the road. Sounds great, Matt. Thank you, brother. And uh, for anyone who's interested, the podcast is available at MomentumPodcast.com, and it's on iTunes as well. Awesome. Alex, I'll see you soon. I know of that. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, buddy. Bye. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money. <laughs>